6. And you will see that the weight of your body will count for a great deal in the operation. In old Mr. Naylor's yard he lived in a little town in Pennsylvania there was one of these wells. It had been dug by his father, and, as it had answered all his needs from his childhood, Mr. Naylor very justly considered it would continue to do so until his death, and he would listen to no one who proposed to put up a pump for him, or make him a windlass. One afternoon in the summertime, Jenny Naylor, his granddaughter, had company, and after they had been playing around the orchard for an hour or two, and had slid down the straw stacks to their heart's content, the children all went to the well to get a drink. A bucket of water was soon hauled up, and Tommy Barrett with a tin cup ladled out the refreshment to the company. When they had all drank enough they began to play with the well pole. Boys and girls will play, you know, with things that no grown person would imagine could be tortured into means of amusement. In less than five minutes they had invented a game, that island the boys had. I will give the girls the credit of standing by and looking on, in a very disapproving manner, while this game was going on. The pastime was a very simple one. When the stone end of the pole rested on the ground, on account of the bucket being empty, one of the boys stood by the well curb, and, seizing the rope as high up as he could, pulled upon it, the other boys lifting the stone end at the same time. When the stone was a foot or two from the ground the boys at that end sat on the pole and endeavored to hoist up the fellow at the other end. A glorious game. The sport went on very nicely until Tommy Barrett took hold of the rope. He was the biggest boy, and the little fellows could not raise him. Remember it was no use, so they gave it up and jumped off of the pole. But what was their amazement to see the stone rise in the air, while at the same time Tommy Barrett disappeared down the well. The fact was, Tommy had been trying to show off a little before the girls, and when he found the boys could not raise him, had stepped on the well curb, and pushing the bucket off, had stood on it, trying, on his part, to raise the boys. So, when they jumped off, down he sank. The stone was not nearly so heavy as Tommy, but it was weighty enough to prevent his going down very fast, and he arrived safely at the bottom, where the boys and girls saw him, when they crowded around the well standing up to his armpits in water, pull me up, quick, cried Tommy, who still stood on the bucket, and had hold of the rope, the children did not wait to be asked twice, they seized the rope and pulled their very best, but they could not move Tommy one inch, the rope hung right down the middle of the well, and as they had to reach over a good deal even to touch it, they could get no opportunity of exerting their full strength upon it, and it is very well that they could not, for had they been able to raise Tommy, it is probable that one or two of them would have been jerked down the well every time he slipped down again, which he would have been certain to do a great many times before he reached the top. They soon perceived that they could not draw Tommy from the well in that way, and the stone end of the pole was far out of their reach. What should they do? There was no one at the house but the two old people, and they were scarcely as strong as the children. They all said a great deal, but Jenny Naylor, who was much older than any of the others, saw that something must be done instantly, for Tommy was crying out that he was nearly frozen to death, and she was afraid that he would let go of the rope, slip off of the bucket, and be drowned, so, without a word to anybody, she ran to the upright stake and began to climb it, this was a very unladylike proceeding, perhaps, but Jenny did not think about anything of that kind, she was the oldest and the largest of them all, and there was no time to explain matters to the boys, up she went, as actively as any boy, and scrambling to the crow's nest of the stake, she seated herself upon the pole, 
Then she began to work herself slowly up towards the stone end, and as she gradually approached the stone, so she gradually began to sink a little, and the nearer she got to it the more she sank and the higher Tommy Bear rose in the well. She and the stone were heavier than he was, and some of the children stood, with open mouths, looking at Jenny slowly coming down, while the others crowded around the well to see Tommy slowly coming up. When Jenny had nearly touched the ground, there was Tommy hanging above the well. Half a dozen little hands seized the bucket, and Tommy, as wet as a dish rag, stepped onto the curb. I wish, from the bottom of my heart, that whenever there is a party of children, playing around in open well, that there could be a girl like Jenny Naylor with them, a vegetable gas manufactory. There is a plant, called by botanists the Fraxinella, which has the peculiar property of giving out, from its leaves and stalks, a gas which is inflammable. Sometimes, on a very still day, when there is no wind to blow it away as fast as it is produced, this gas may be ignited by a match, when the plant is growing in the open air, but this is very seldom the case, for the air must be very quiet, and the plant very productive, for enough gas to be found around it to ignite when a flame is applied, but it is perfectly possible, as you may see in the engraving, to collect sufficient gas from the fraxinella to produce combustion whenever desired. If the plant is surrounded by a glass case, the gas, as fast as produced, is confined in the case, and at last there is so much collected in this novel gasometer, that it is only necessary to open the case, and apply a match, to see plant gas burning, it is not at all probable that the least use in the world could be made of this gas, but it is certainly a very pretty experiment to collect and ignite it. There are other plants which have this property of exuding illuminating gas in very small quantities, but none, I believe, except the Fraxinella, will produce enough of it to allow this experiment to be performed. A few words about bears. If you should ever be going up a hill, and should meet such a procession as that on the opposite page, coming down, I would recommend you to get just as far to one side as you can possibly go. Bears, especially when there are so many of them together, are by no means pleasant companions in a walk but it is likely that you might wander about the world for the rest of your lives, and never meet so many bears together as you see in the engraving. They are generally solitary animals, and unless you happen to fall in with a mother and her cubs, you would not be likely to see more than one at a time. In our own country, in the unsettled parts of many of the states, the black bear is still quite common, and I could tell you of places where, if you pushed carefully up mountain paths and through lonely forests, you might come upon a fine black bear, sitting at the entrance of her cave, with two or three of her young ones playing about her, if it should so happen that the bear neither heard you, saw you, or smelled you, you might see this great beast fondling her young ones, and licking their fur as gently and tenderly as a cat with her kittens, if she perceived you at last, and you were at a distance, it is very probable that she and her young ones, if they were big enough, would all scramble out of sight in a very short time, for the black bears are very shy of man if circumstances will permit them to get away before he approaches too near to them. But if you are so near as to make the old bear mother fearful for the safety of her children, you will find that she will face you in a minute. And if you are not well able to take care of yourself, you will wish you had never seen a bear. But, in the western part of our country, especially in the Rocky Mountain region, the grizzly bear is found, and he is a very different animal from his black relations. He is the most savage and formidable animal on this continent, and very seldom is it that he runs away from a man, 
he is glad enough to get a chance to fight one. He is so large and powerful that he is very difficult to kill, and the hunter who has slain a grizzly bear may well be proud of the exploit. Washington Irving tells of a hunter who accidentally fell into a deep hole, out in the prairies, and he tumbled right on top of a great grizzly bear. How the bear got down there is not stated, and I don't suppose the hunter stopped to inquire. A fight immediately commenced between these two involuntary companions, and after a long struggle, in which the man had an arm and leg broken, and was severely bitten and torn besides, he killed the bear. The hunter had a very hard time after that, but after passing through adventures of various kinds, he floated down the Mississippi on a log and was taken in at a fort. He recovered, but was maimed for life. I think it is probable that no other man ever killed a grizzly bear in single combat, and I also had my doubts about this one having done so. It is very likely that his victim was a black bear. Few men care to hunt the grizzly bear except on horseback, so that if they have to run away, they may have better legs than their own under them. The other great bear of this continent is the white or polar bear, of which we have all heard so much. Up in the regions of ice and snow this bear lives just as comfortably as the tiger in the hot jungles of Asia, and while he is not quite so savage as the tiger, he is almost as hard to kill, but, in speaking of his disposition, I had no intention whatever to give him a character for amiability, in fact, he is very ferocious at times, he has often been known to attack parties of men, and when wounded can make a most soul-stirring defense, the polar bear is a big fellow, with long white hair, and he lives on seals and fish, and almost anything he can pick up. Sometimes he takes a fancy to have a man or two for his supper, as the following story will prove. A ship, returning from Nova Zembla, anchored near an island in the Arctic Ocean, and two of the sailors went on land. They were standing on the shore, talking to each other, when one of them cried out, Stop squeezing me! The other one looked around, and there was a white bear, very large but very lean and scraggy which had sneaked up behind the sailors, and now had clutched one of them, whom he very speedily killed and commenced to eat, while the other sailor ran away. The whole crew of the ship now landed, and came after the bear, endeavoring to drive him away from the body of their comrade, but as they approached him, he quietly looked at them for a minute, and then jumped right into the middle of the crowd, seized another man, and killed him. Upon this, the crew ran away as fast as they could and scuttling into their boats, rowed away to the ship. There were three of these sailors, however, who were too brave to stay there and see a bear devouring the bodies of their friends, and they returned to the island. The bear did not move as they approached him, and they fired on him, without seeming to injure him in the least. At length one of them stepped up quite close to him, and put a ball into his head just above his eye, but even this did not kill him, although it is probable that it lessened his vigor for he soon began to stagger, and the sailors, falling upon him with their swords, were able to put him to death, and to rescue the remains of their comrades. After these stories, I think that we will all agree that when we meet a procession of bears, be they black, white, or grizzly, we will be very wise to give them the right of way, and to endeavor to drive from our minds, as far as possible. Such ideas of the animals as we may have derived from those individuals which we have seen in rural menageries, nimbly climbing poles, or sedately drinking soda water. Here is a picture of a handsome summer residence. It apparently belongs to a rich man, and a man of taste. The house is large and commodious, the grounds are well laid out, there is a garden, evidently a fine one. Close at hand, there is shade, 
water, fruit, flowers, and apparently everything that a country house ought to have, but yet there is a certain something strange and unusual about it. There are handsome porticos, but they are differently arranged from those to which we have been accustomed, such as those in front we have often seen, but the upper one, which appears to go nearly around the house, with short pillars on the sides, is different from anything that we see in our country neighborhoods. Those long pillars at the rear of the house seem very peculiar. We have never noticed anything like them in such positions. There seems to be scarcely any portico at the back, and those slim pillars are certainly useless, and, to our eyes, not very ornamental. The windows, too, are remarkable. They are not only very small, but they are wider at the bottom than the top a strange idea of the architect to make them in that way. The upper story of the house does not appear to have any windows at all, but we suppose that they must be in the back and front, or the artist may have accidentally left them out. Even if that floor was used for lumber rooms, there ought to be windows. The garden has a very high wall for a private estate. It is evident that there must be great fear of thieves in that neighborhood, but it is no wonder that some things about this house and its grounds strike us as peculiar, for it was built more than 3,000 years ago. It was the country residence of an Egyptian gentleman, and was, no doubt, replete with all the modern conveniences of the period. Even in the present day he might consider himself a very fortunate man who had so good a house and grounds as these. If the windows were made a little larger, a few changes effected in the interior of the establishment, and some chimneys and fireplaces built, none of our rich men need be ashamed of such a house. Handsome as an island it is not probable that this house cost the Egyptian gentleman very much. It is very likely, indeed, that it was built, under the supervision of an architect, by his own slaves, and that the materials came from his own estates. But he may, of course, have spent large sums on its decoration and furniture, and it is very probable, judging from the outside of his house, that he did so. Some of those old Egyptians were most luxurious fellows. If you wish to see how his slaves worked while they were building his house, just examine this picture. To be sure, it is a temple which these men are building, but the bricklayers, hog carriers, etc. worked in the same way when they were putting up a private house. These poor men whom you see twalling here were probably not born slaves, and it is very likely that many of them are equal in birth and education to those who own them. A great proportion of them are captives taken in war and condemned for the rest of their lives to a labor for their victorious enemies that will be a vast temple which they are building. Look at the foundations what enormously thick walls. It is probable that several generations of slaves will labor upon that temple before it is finished. They do not work exactly as we do in the present day. The hog carrier, who is bringing bricks from the background, has a very good way of carrying them, but those who are bearing a pile of bricks between them seem to make a very awkward business of it and the man who was carrying mortar on his shoulder, as he ascends the ladder, might very profitably take a lesson from some of our Irish hog carriers. An earthen pot with a round bottom is certainly a poor thing in which to carry mortar up a ladder. The man who was apparently squaring a stone, and the one who was smoothing or trimming off some bricks, are using very peculiar chopping tools, but they may have answered their purpose very well. At any rate, most magnificent edifices were built by the men who used them although it is probable that the poor fellows progressed very slowly with their work. It may be, when three thousand years more had elapsed, that our country houses and our methods of building may appear as strange as this mansion of the Egyptian gentlemen, and the customs of the Egyptian bricklayers, seem to us, 
but then we shall be the ancient Americans, and it will make no sort of difference to us what the future moderns say about us. Far away forests, I have no doubt that you all like to wander in the woods, but suppose we ramble for an hour or two in forests so far away that it is probable none of you have ever seen them. Let us first enter a pine forest, we have plenty of pines in our own country, and it is probable that most of you have walked in the pine woods, on many a summer's day, when the soft carpet of needles, or pine shatters, as some people call them, was so pleasant to the feet, the aromatic perfume of the leaves and trees was so delicious, and everything was so quiet and solemn, but here is a pine forest in the eastern hemisphere, these woods are vast and lonely, the ground is torn up by torrents, for it is a mountainous district, and the branches have been torn and broken by many a storm, it is not a pleasant place for those who love cheerful scenery, and moreover, it is not so safe to ramble here as in our own woods at home, companies of bandits inhabit many of these forests, especially those that stretch over the mountainous portions of Italy, it seems strange that in this enlightened era and in one of the civilized countries of Europe, bandits should still exist to terrify the traveler, but so it is, let us get out of this pine forest, so gloomy and perhaps so dangerous, here, now, is a very different place, this is a forest in the tropics, you will not be likely to meet with bandits here, in fact, it is very improbable indeed that you will meet with anyone, there are vast portions of these woods which have never been trodden by the foot of man, and which you can never see unless you cut your way, hatchet in hand, among the thick undergrowth and the interlacing vines, here are ferns as large as trees great masses of flowers that seem as if a whole garden had been emptied down before us vast wildernesses of green, which we know extend for miles and miles, and which, although apparently so thick and impenetrable, are full of all kinds of life, vegetable and animal, the trees are enormous, but many of them are so covered with vines and creepers that we can scarcely distinguish the massive trunks and luxuriant foliage, every color is here, rich green, royal purple, red, yellow, lilac, brown, and gray, the vines, which overrun everything, are filled with gorgeous flowers, and hang from the branches in the most graceful forms, monkeys chatter among the trees, beautiful parrots fly from limb to limb, butterflies of the most gorgeous hues flutter about the grass tops and the leaves near the ground, and on every log and trunk are myriads of insects, lizards and little living things of endless varieties, all strange and wonderful to us, in some parts of this interminable forest, where the light breaks through the foliage, we see suspended from the trees the wonderful air plants or orchids, they seem like hanging baskets of flowers, and are far more beautiful and luxuriant than anything of the kind that we have in our hothouses at home, but we shall not find it easy to walk through all these beauties, as I said before, we shall often be obliged to cut a path with our hatchets, and even then we may be unable to penetrate very far into this jungle of beauties, the natives of these countries, when they are compelled to pass through these dense forests, often take to the small streams and wade along in the water, which is sometimes up to their shoulders, occasionally finding shallower places, or a little space on the banks where they can pick their way along for a few hundred yards before they are obliged to take to the stream again, everything is lovely and luxuriant here, but it will not do to stay too long, there are fevers and snakes, let us now go to the greatest woods in the whole world, I do not mean the most extensive forest, but that one where the trees are the grandest. This is the region where the giant trees of California grow. Nowhere on the face of the earth are there such trees as these. Some of them stand over 400 feet high, and are 30 feet in diameter. 
Their age is believed to be about 1800 years. Think of it. They have been growing there during the whole of the Christian era. One of them, the very largest of all, has been lying on the ground for about 150 years. When it was standing its diameter was about 40 feet. Another trunk, which is lying on the ground, has been hollowed out by fire, and through this great bore or to the whole company of horsemen has ridden. One of these trees was cut down some years ago by a party of men, who, I think, should have been sent to prison for the deed. It took five men twenty-five days to cut it through with augers and saws, and then they were obliged to use a great wedge and a battering ram to make it fall. These are the kings of all trees. After such a grand sight, we will not want to see any more trees today, and we will leave the forests so far away and sit and think of them under our humble grapevines and honeysuckles. Building ships, it is a grand thing to own great ships, and to send them over the ocean to distant countries, but I will venture to say that few men have derived so much pleasure from their fine vessels, laden with all kinds of valuable freight, as many a boy has had in the possession of a little schooner, which would be overloaded with a quart of chestnuts, and it is not only in the ownership of these little crafts that boys delight, they enjoy the building of them quite as much and a boy who can build a good ship is not to be laughed at by any mechanic or architect, no matter how tall or how old he may be. The young shipbuilder who understands his trade, when he is about to put a vessel on the stocks to speak technically first makes up his mind whether it is to be a ship, a schooner, a sloop, or merely a sailboat, and determines its size. Then he selects a good piece of solid, but light wood, which will be large enough for the hull. Pine is generally used, but if he can get a piece of well-seasoned white willow, he will find it to work very easily. Then he shapes his helm with knife and saw, according to the best of his ability. On this process the success of the whole undertaking depends. If the bottom is not cut perfectly true on both sides, if the bow is not shapely and even, if the stern is not rounded off and cut up in the orthodox fashion, his ship will never sail well, no matter how admirably he may execute the rest of his work. If there is a ship or boat builder's establishment anywhere within reasonable walking distance, it will well pay our young shipwright to go there, and study the forms of hulls, even if he should never build a ship. He ought to know how they look out of the water. When the hull is properly shaped it must be hollowed out. This is done by means of a gouge, or chisel with a curved edge. A small vessel can be hollowed by means of a knife or ordinary chisel, but it is best to have a gouge, if there is much wood to be taken out. When he has made the interior of his vessel as deep and wide as he thinks proper, he will put a deck on it, if it is a ship or a schooner, but if it is a sailboat or sloop, he will probably only put in seats or thwarts, as the sailors call them, or else half-deck it. Then comes the most interesting part of the work the rigging, first the masts, which must be light and tapering, and standing back at a slight angle, are set up, and the booms and yards are attached. A great deal of ingenuity can be displayed, in making the booms work well on the masts. The bowsprit is a simple matter, and the stays, or ropes which support and strengthen the masts, are very easily attached, as they are stationary affairs, but the working tackle and the sails will show whether our young friend has a genius for boat building or not. If his vessel has but a single mast, and he merely makes a mainsail and a jib, he will not have much trouble, but if he intends to fit out a schooner, a brig, or a ship, with sails that will work and wears the boy with soul so that as to have any other kind, he will find that he will have a difficult job before him, but if he tries hard, and examines the construction and working of sails in real ships, 
he will also find that he can do it. If the vessel is a fine one, she ought to be painted this, of course, to be done before the sails are finally fastened to the booms and yards, and her name should be tastefully painted on her stern, where of course, a rudder, carefully working on little hooks, is already hung. It will be very difficult to tell when the ship will be actually finished. There will always be a great deal to do after you think all is done. Flags must be made, and little halyards running nicely through little pulleys or rings. Ballast must be provided and adjusted. Conveniences for storing away freight. If the ship is large and voyages are contemplated, must be provided. A crew, perhaps a little cannon for salutes, an anchor and windlass. And I am sure I cannot tell you what else besides will be thought of before the ship is done, but it will be done some time, and then comes the happy hour, if the owner is fortunate enough to live near a pond or a brook, so that he can send her right across to where his partner stands ready to receive her, he is a lucky boy indeed, what a proud moment, when, with all sails set and her rudder fixed at the proper angle, she is launched, how straight she sits in the water, and how her little streamer begins to float in the wind, now see her sails gradually puff out. She moves gently from the shore. Now she bends over a little as the wind fills her sails. And she is off. Faster and faster she glides along. Her cut water rippling the water in front of her. And her flags fluttering bravely in the air. And her delighted owner, with laughing eyes, beholds her triumphantly scudding over the surface of the pond. I tell you what it island boys. I have built a great many ships. And I feel very much like building another. B-O-R-A-N-G-O-U-D-A-N-G. B-O-R-A-N-G-O-U-D-A-N-G. and the chimpanzee approach nearer to man in their formation and disposition than any other animals. And yet these apes seldom evince as much apparent sense and good feeling as the dog or elephant. They imitate man very often. But they exhibit few inherent qualities which should raise them to the level of many of man's brute companions. I do not wish. However. To cast any aspersions on an animal generally so good-tempered and agreeable in captivity as the orangutan, what he might become, after his family had been for several generations in a condition of domestic servitude, I cannot tell. He might then even surpass the dog in his attachment to man and his general intelligence. At all events, the orangutan has a certain sense of humor which is not possessed by animals in general. He is very fond of imitating people and sometimes acts in the most grotesque and amusing way. But, like many human wits of whom we read, his manner is always very solemn, even when performing his funniest feats. An old gentleman once went to see a very large and fine orangutan, and was very much surprised when the animal approached him, and taking his hat and his cane from him, put on the hat, and, with the cane in his hand, began to walk up and down the room, imitating, as nearly as possible, the gait and figure of his venerable visitor. There was another orangutan, who belonged to a missionary, who performed a trick even more amusing than this. His master was preaching one Sunday to his congregation, when Mr. Orangutan, having escaped from the room where he had been shut up, slipped very quietly into the church, and climbed up on the top of the organ, just over the pulpit, where his master was delivering his sermon. After looking about him for a minute or two, the ape commenced to imitate the preacher, making all his gestures and motions. Of course the people began to smile when they saw this, and the minister, thinking that they were behaving very improperly, rebuked them for their inattention, and preached away more earnestly than before. The orangutan, of course, followed his example, 
and commenced to gesticulate so earnestly and powerfully that the congregation burst into a laughter, and plonked out the irreverent ape. When he turned and saw the performance of his imitator, the preacher could not help laughing himself, and the orangutan, after a good deal of time had been spent in catching him, was put out of church, and the services went on as usual. Nobody likes to be made an object of ridicule, and it is probable that this disposition of making fun of people, which seems so natural to the orangutan, would prevent his becoming a domesticated member of our families, no matter how full and susceptible of training he might prove to be. Nearly all of us have some comical peculiarity, and we would not want an animal in the house who would be sure, at some time, to expose us to a laughter by his imitative powers. So I am afraid that the orangutans, intelligent as they are, will have to stay in the woods. Little Bridget's bath. Little Bridget was a good girl and a pretty one, but she had ideas of her own. She liked to study her lessons, to mind her mother, and to behave herself as a little girl should, but she did despise to be washed. There was something about the very smell of soap and the touch of water which made her shrink and shiver, and she would rather have seen the doctor come to her with a teaspoonful of medicine than to have her aunt and approach with a bowl full of water, a towel, and a great piece of soap. For a long time little Bridget believed that there was no escape from this terrible daily trial, but one bright morning, when she awoke very early, long before anyone else in the house, she thought that it was too bad, when everything else was so happy, when the birds and butterflies were flying about so gaily in the early sunbeams, and the flowers were all so gay and bright, and smelling so sweet and contented, that she should have to lie there on her little bed until her aunt and came with that horrible soap and towel. She made up her mind. She wouldn't stand it. She would run away before she came to wash her. For one morning she would be happy. So up she jumped. And without stopping to dress herself. Ran out among the birds and flowers. She rambled along by the brook. Where the sand felt so nice and soft too. 